We all have heard horror stories of how a remodel nearly tore a couple apart, as well as how impactful our environment can be on our state of well-being. Remodels don't have to end in divorce, and we can reflect our true selves in our environment with the right approach. Welcome to Psychotecture. My name is Rachel Melvald, and I'm a psychotherapist and designer. Psychotecture was developed as a methodological approach to ease issues that come up in design challenges, as well as the philosophy on how our environment can reflect our highest selves. Each week, I will interview an expert in the field of design and psychology to shed light on design challenges. I will also have a special series called The Psychotech is In, where I can offer help to those in design intervention need. Welcome to The Psychotech is In, the sensory integration series. Today, we're going to be focusing on a very exciting opportunity to be interviewing architect Janet Krauss of Krauss Architecture. She is a fascinating architect. I have just really felt it was serendipitous to cross her path recently as we're talking about how we feel and live in our environments. Janet is an architect that very much holds that value in her practice. As we've moved from color, we're transitioning to color and light. And I thought it was serendipitous that Janet has worked with James Terrell as an architect on many projects. So we're going to go through how we feel in light, lighting as an architect, lighting and art, and obviously going to the experimental in James Terrell's art installations. Janet, welcome. I'm so pleased and grateful to have you here today. Well, I'll speak about the Roden Crater Project, which I served as a model builder for James Terrell since 1988. And he, he started the project after doing some very preliminary explorations in using light as art or painting with light and the psychological effects of that, which has an effect on the body, relaxation, meditation. Spaces have been created throughout the centuries for this type of effect, temples, churches. He chose Roden Crater because he wanted to create a place where you could observe astronomical events, natural light, natural starlight, moonlight, and also sunlight through tunnels and chambers that are designed together with an astronomer who knew how to capture astronomical events on a 10,000-year calendar, working together with James to design the spaces. So he started in his career to carve light out of a hotel room and later went on this much larger scale. The crater is three miles across, and a lot of the work has been done. It's still underway, but in recent times, it's gotten really good support because people who have experienced other works of light by James are very enthusiastic. What we've done, the group of us led by James, we've created a destination. And a destination is a form of real estate development. It's like if the creators in Flagstaff, it's going to be good for Flagstaff. So some people from Arizona State University realized this. He has support from Kanye West, but it started with the models. The crater was the site that was picked. He secured the land with a combination of purchase and land leases. And then in order to 
get the work done, it had to have funding. And this isn't the kind of funding where you build a building and then sell it or rent it out. The funding isn't going to come back to you from the creator, but because it's a space of ceremonies and gatherings and that sort of thing, business is done at a very high level in these kinds of spaces, whether it's a a yacht or a crater or a park, church or a temple, all these spaces have the ability to get people together to enjoy the experience of the space. And in this case, some of the experiences have been quite dynamic, like the alignment of the sun and the moon through the tunnel only occurs so many times on the calendar. So that creates an event, people come. And so the, the people who have given money have gained it back through the connections and business deals that they make around it. It's great for Flagstaff. It's great for Arizona. Eventually, it will be a destination linked to the Parks Department. It's unique because it's an earthwork, which is a sculpture by an artist using the earth. So it's not a park. It's a modified natural landscape. It's a volcano. And the way we did the initial stages, we made models, and then the models were used for the development, but the models don't show what the space will do. So the models are a scale model. It's like publication exhibition level. The prototype is really the full scale. And while James was doing this project, he was also doing gallery shows and over a hundred other autonomous spaces, which are inspired by stupas. So the stupa is the template, but James has made these individual buildings cited according to the client. He's made them like stupas. It's like a could be public or private, but it's a space which is a gathering space to observe light. And he has two kinds of light. There's the natural light and then artificial programmable light. But James himself has has looked at many of these ancient structures for inspiration. And that's that's the template. That's what you you start with something where there's a vision, but it's kind of enduring vision. It may not even appeal to everyone in this moment, but it has potential for longevity. The tunnels and the chambers are built to last 10,000 years, but eventually the cinder cone will deteriorate. And even that will have its own kind of beauty, like ruins have a beauty. So it's really designed for a long-term statement. And that's so beautifully put, Janet, because I sense that that is your your value in architecture and building homes, right? It's being a visionary of how architectural sites can last. And like you're saying, maybe not in the moment of the zeitgeist of where we're at, but in particular with you and Terrell, his vision based on just so myself and our viewers understand, I'm looking at these fascinating photos of the the stupas. Is that how you? Yeah, these are ancient structures that were used as gathering places and temples. They were usually in the landscape, not in the city, but they're called stupas because that's a category. There's also the ancient Wukuchi ruins. So this is a ruin, but it's still quite beautiful. And then these, this depressed circle is kind of a gathering place and games were played. And, you know, the Colosseum in Rome, many of these tourist attractions, they would be 
a burden on the city if they didn't bring in so many tourists. So they pay for themselves by being interesting and places to go, destinations. So it's a form of real estate development. You establish a support system around it. You establish a purpose and you create value in the adjacent areas. And that's been true for some museums like the Dia and Beacon bring $7 million of business every year to Beacon. That's right. There's other examples in residential sector like golf courses, for instance. If, if a golf course is built, the houses around it will be more valuable. Attractions, you know, the Eiffel Tower is an attraction, you know, so people will come and, and business money will be spent. And the crater is kind of a developed long-term sort of tourism destination. It's also a work of art and it also has a very specific series of events which can be viewed in a specific way, some more often than others. There's a chamber where you observe the North Star and the floor is tilted. So if you stare at the North Star, there's this fulcrum effect and tilted floor, you can actually feel the earth rotate. You can actually feel the earth rotate? Nobody feels it. (laughs) So it embodies the kind of vestibular sensory motor connection to the earth actually feeling that. It does have a benefit. I mean, I think people, when they've had this experience, they feel happier, they go home. Well, Cookie Ruins, that's James. He observes and imagines what the ruins were like before they were ruins. He, he watches the light. He's, he studies the built environment, and he's he's trained in psychology. He actually has training in psychology and art. I didn't know that. That's why I'm so attracted to. That's why Psychotecture wanted to highlight his work. Yeah. He has a degree in perceptual psychology, but he he really notices long views, light, and working with the astronomers, he he created this calendar. And then what I did, I initially came to work for him, working on a very large model of Odin crater that had been built by Robert Mangurin, who teaches at SciArc, and his wife, Marianne Wright. And that got exhibited, then put in storage, and then it needed work. So I was just starting out as an intern, and I did some of the repairs on it. And then I was asked to do some larger models of stupas, as well as rodent crater models, as they were developed. Because all of the outside pieces, this whole satellite of different stupa-like buildings, autonomous spaces by James, they're buildings which are used to exhibit light. And there's water pieces as well. There was one that was really popular in Poitiers, France, that involved putting on a bathing suit that went along with the piece. And you go in and then come up in the middle and most of the bathing suits disappeared. (laughs) It was very popular. And then the piece got taken down. It was not permanent. but It's like the built siete, those sietes when you go in in the water. There are other ones that are more permanent, but my models were mostly about three foot by three foot in scale, a little less, you know, and then it was a series. We did many, many of these models of different types of autonomous spaces, but they're they're based on the stupa that goes in the landscape where you go and you sit, you have a meeting, you, you have a ceremony, or you just meditate. So those are, they have a purpose and it's, it's not residential. I mean, specifically could be linked or attached to a residence. Like there's the Baker Pool in Connecticut, which has 
a pool, which is an artwork. He had an opening party and someone fell in because I can't tell between the surface, but it's really beautiful. It's surreal. And that space was linked to the resonance, but it's still separate. It's like, it's like when you have a, if you have a, a large estate and part of it is a chapel, it's similar to that, but it's not, the purpose is not religious. It's, it's really perceptual psychology where you use the light to relax. You get the benefit of this beautiful, your body disappears. If you go inside one of the Gansfeld spaces, you lay on a table and you enter this sphere, which has a light program, and there's nothing, you can't actually see any edges or anything, just light. And so, Is that the perceptual cell, or is this? Well, the perceptual cell is a smaller version of the gas works or Gansfeld, where you enter into the sphere, your whole body goes into the sphere. And that's nice because then you're lying down. The perceptual cell, you're standing up, but it has a similar effect. You, you have this complete color program surround. With Gansfeld, you, you don't know what you're seeing. You can't tell how far anything is. There's no concept of depth. It's just color. And the color program is specific. He designs it specifically to have a certain effect. In an exhibition in Japan, a reporter came and then took some images from the exhibition and then showed them on television, but he didn't have the same sequence. And James is very careful about the sequence to avoid what happened. 700 people in Japan had epileptic fits. Uh, from the lighting. Yeah, well, because it was put on TV and people were up close to the screen, but if they hadn't edited the lighting program, that wouldn't have happened. So he had to get up and apologize, which made him extremely popular in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read about that, the epileptic effects of that. It's like how a strobe light. Yeah, if you don't do it right, it doesn't have that benefit. So you have to really know what you're doing. He really does. He's a master of creating those transitions between different colors and having a certain effect. And he gets people laying down on the floor of the Guggenheim, just staring up into the space. And I'm pulling up those images now. The board, initially, they'd been talking to him about doing a show, but they weren't really sure about when. And, you know, they finally agreed to do it, but they all thought, well, let's just put it up for a short time because... There won't be that many people. They had the, a record turnout. You know? <laughs> At the Guggenheim show. Yeah, because th there's a whole segment of people who are not going to go to the Guggenheim to see a new painting show, but they will go for this because they want that. It's very seductive. It's, it's alluring. You, you go, you take your date, and you're laying down on the floor. You know, it's, It has a psychological effect that's good. It's positive. And... I'm not saying that other artworks are not, but the board was completely surprised by the turnout. They didn't expect that. They thought this was kind of offbeat. And for years, I've been talking about this crater in Arizona, and people think I'm nuts. You know? <laughs> Before it became public, it does sound. But I understood it from a historical perspective that it was a good thing that we need more earthworks. I love earthworks. There's other artists earthwork artists that I've worked with, including Michael Heiser. And he did a piece out near Heiko, Nevada, called Double Negative. 
Do we have an image of that, Janet? Or I, it's not. I can get it. Okay, you could just describe that. Okay, because yeah, the the intersection of earthworks and light. I love that. What he did is he removed some earth and then went across and removed some from a gully. So he had had like this. It was what wasn't there that was the sculpture, which is a great idea, and it's it's still there. Nobody's gonna put it back, <laughs> put the ridge back. It's really great. It's a, it's, you can see it from the air. You can experience it down below. So even, even in a book, it looks great. It's, it's a really brilliant piece. And it sounds like Janet, it sounds like the merging of, like you're saying, I love land art, but it's more than land art. It's like creating these like you're saying, they're, they're meditation rooms, they're temples. It's, it's a place to ground yourself. And I kind of think of it psychologically as when we're grounded and connected to the earth, we're rooted like a tree. And then you're able to connect as you're witnessing a sky, witnessing light. That connection is so vital. It's primal. It's primal. But it's not necessarily a solitary experience you can you can go into like for instance the Guggenheim you can go in there and enjoy it with a crowd of people and everyone's looking at the same thing and you're it brings people together in a unique way that's right I think that even more so like Maslow's hierarchy of needs we go from safety to socialization to actualization. I feel like Terrell embodies that in his installations because we're then communing. And as we know, as of now, what we're going through in, in this pandemic, that communing is part of our nature. It's primal. And as I even look at this image, when I've experienced a Terrell room, a meditation room, or it's not called a meditation room. What what would this be called? The Guggenheim show that was called. It's not meditation. It's simply a light installation. It includes the, the sculpted fabric surround and then the light program, which changes color throughout the day. And people come and they lay down and they experience this very slow change from blue to red. And it has a spectrum. And that's what James has designed. And when he first started the light installations, based on, like you said, it started for him, he's such a visionary. And he went back to astronomy to understand the actual movement of light in the solar system, right? Yeah. And that's why he's a scientist. That's right. There's an observatory in Flagstaff, and he worked with someone there, and they they cited the pieces that are connected by tunnels and paths according to a calendar. It was very specific. And he had wanted to do this on a large scale, what he had started in Santa Monica with the Mendota passages, which was his his early light work. His early light works. And as you've described, his experimental scientific discoveries, which are always based in the past, but there's such an expansion of the of the, the modern new world. And he just seems to synthesize that so beautifully. And going back to the perception cell, we built a lot of these models 
for him. Yes, for the autonomy spaces and for the crater chambers, I did many, many models and or did it over a period of um, years. We started in 1988. The crater, this was before the crater was even conceived. Well, the, he, had, he had been involved with Roden Crater before I came in to the picture. There was already some initial drawings and a site model and a few donors got involved, but there was nothing there. The crater was basically just a nascent art project. But I had some familiarity with large-scale public works from my own family's tradition. And my, my great-great-grandfather, Frederick Olmsted, did about 300 parks. And we started working together with his, his son, was my great-grandfather. And they actually set aside land national parks like Yosemite and there were a number of parks that wouldn't be there if somebody hadn't said, okay, we're, we're not going to build here. By not building there, the adjacent areas are more valuable. So there is, that's what I'm looking for is the give and take. Like, you, you know, you, you can't have everybody with their own private estate while others have nowhere to, to go. This was his thinking and it came from the transcendentalist, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and then later uh, Henry David Thoreau, he was influenced by these thinkers. And he believed strongly that the natural landscape needed to be protected. But if not protected, then it needed to be added back. And landscape architecture was going to be called rural embellishment at one time. <laughs> that didn't... Rural embellishment, how fancy. Making it look like it was always there. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but all these parks add value to the cities which they inhabit, even though they come at a cost. And, and there's a lot of controversy around that. But I believe there's less overhead if you just leave nature and bring nature close. Nature and agriculture don't. Agriculture actually pays for itself. The crater is really a cattle ranch with an art project on it, but they really have uh, a purpose, which if they weren't there, then the land leases wouldn't be affordable and somebody else could come in and lease the state land and graze their cattle on it, in which case James Land, which is checkerboard with the state, would then have other people's cattle on it. So he set it up right away and it's doing well now. He's doing really well with that because they've, they've perfected the management of the ranch. So it's a full functioning ranch where the crater is living on. So it's sustainable. It's working as a part of the commerce of Arizona in terms of the land. So he's really has the crater, not only is it, allowing for a sense of the individual sensory motor experience of being connected to the earth and light, but it's engaging an ecological world, an ecosystem. He still has to make it all work. And there's a cost to just keeping it maintained. And then there's a cost if people want to come. Right now, there's very limited access because the donors want to wait for the opening. They, you know, a few people can go. I've been because I'm involved with the project and I know some people have been there, but in general, it's it's not open to the public. And once you start letting some people in, then other people get angry because they didn't get in. And he has to deal with that. It's a real bubble, not just like in the pandemic sense. 
<laughs> yeah, he's close to the artist Chuck Close, and Chuck has been there, and he's in a wheelchair, and he was able to maneuver. Oh, he was able to go. Yeah. So it's really by invitation. It's really a business meeting if you go there. A business meeting, right? Eventually, it will be a tourist attraction, and the you know the state will probably charge admission. They're investors now. The Arizona State University, together with Kanye West, they're investing about two hundred million. But they're not the only investors. So past investors get some play in the sense that they they can. Again, it's a meeting place. So if you if you're an investor and you have a meeting at the crater, you can invite other people at that level, and it's a meeting place. You know, and it, and it has it does serve a purpose, and and people are enjoying the attention that the project is getting now. Well, he always seems to be able to. It's like kind of getting people at the table. Like I've been in the Kordansky Gallery conference room installation he created. He's having people commune. And I always think in psychology, looking at our different parts of ourselves, maybe this is going too deep here, but we look at, you know, the protector self, the shame self, like a lot of what I do in psychotherapy is putting different parts of ourselves at the table. And I feel like he creates a communal going to the table. And like you said, this is a place of business affairs now, but it's generating a natural peaked interest that's organically growing with the right investors to maintain it. Can you speak to, you've had your own, obviously, because you've done the models, you've been an integral part of creating the crater. How was that experience for you to let our viewers know, like, what was that from start to finish? How was that experience for you? Well, it wasn't easy. Some of the models were quite complicated to construct. I was building out of plaster, but I got skilled as I went along and I did the stupa models. All of this is a skill and I'm I'm a skilled model builder, but I felt like it was worth all the effort because of the outcome. What would eventually come out of this, I could really feel good about it. I'm not making any models for anybody. I have a long, long relationship now with James and his wife, Kyung, is fantastic. And we're, we're like, we're all in this common effort. I may not have given millions of dollars, but what I gave was worth a lot. So I've become, in a sense, part of the family. So you actually got to go experience going into the crater, obviously. Oh, many times, yeah. I went there with the French Chamber of Commerce when there was an event there and we had to stay up all night. And then, and then they became like somebody, ha- I went, with a friend of mine who's also an architect. We were there to help and we had to take them somewhere else because James needed, like, he needed to get some stuff done. And he's like, can you, can you take the French Chamber of Commerce to some other tourist sites? So I became a tour guide in addition to being an architect and model builder. And I, you know, I went to help whatever way that I could. I believed in this project as a, I think there's a, a legacy there and it, it fits with my own family's legacy and I I think large scale landscape projects need to be undertaken by many different people. It's not just money and the designer, it's all the different factions which have to be sorted out, including the cattle ranching operation just I mean they have to work for the crater to work. Everything 
has a place in this. And so it's, it's like a corporation, but you don't see anything except the, this tunnel and then some chambers. But the whole thing is an operation. And it's also like a pilgrimage for these dignitaries from France that had traveled so far to go and, and connect with the land and be a part of this. When he does his light installations, is he replicating the actual blue of the sky? Well, the, the artificial light is designed sequences to have a specific effect. It's not the same as natural light, but when you're in a sky space or you're observing the sky through an oculus and it's just before dusk, you actually see the light change. And there's this effect, you're, you're staring into a, an infinite void, essentially. It's, it's like a Gensfeld, but the Gensfeld with the artificial light, it has a boundary. You can't see the boundary, but the natural light has no boundary. Okay, so no boundary. That's fascinating to me. What is it that you refer to, the Gensler? Gensfeld. It means complete field or perceptual deprivation is a phenomenon of perception caused by exposure to an unstructured uniform stimulation field. The effect is a result of the brain amplifying the neural noise in order to look for the missing visual signal. It's like seeing and being blind at the same time, if that makes sense. You can't tell what you're seeing. I've done it and I feel like I forget my body. I'm just looking and then I'm just in light and your eyes take in the surrounding, but there's no scale anymore. So you can be inside this perceptual cell or a larger cell, but when you're experiencing the light, the natural light and the sky, there's no limit. And that's what I've talked to a few architects and designers about that effect when there's an open horizon, there's no boundary, you're kind of absorbed into that space is where we're kind of, like you're saying, it's it's such a connected experience. It's almost like we're connected to our soul. It transcends. It's a kind of perceptual tabula rasa. You know, you you don't really see anything, and so you then you forget. Also, there's this forgetting. So not so much it's sensory integration, but it's like you're saying you're seeing it and you're disappearing in it, and it's a very ephemeral experience. It's dreamlike. You're alert, but it's dreamlike, and you can enjoy it for whatever period of time you wish. In the exhibitions, people line up for this. They really want this experience. They, they enjoy it. So the crater is different because it's really about natural light, astronomical events. And it's definitely a unique project because you're witnessing a, a natural phenomenon, which is a crater that's been altered, but in a way that is respectful. Yeah, it's really an exciting prospect for all of us, I think, to someday visit. And I think what's so special right now is to get the opportunity to talk to you about the ins and outs of this magical journey you've been on with it and to see the images and to really understand how the ecology, the land, light, astronomy, how this is a project of natural light, whereas maybe the other installation projects are working with artificial light. Right. What also is great about Roden Crater is it's an ancient type of project 
but it's being built in modern times with modern standards. It's ADA accessible. It's really an event space and it has many different features, which you find in the stupas, but they're all brought together in a sequence with tunnels. And so it's a destination. And I think it'll be great for Arizona, great for Flagstaff. And do you anticipate a time where there is going to be a public entry experience? Well, they're talking about 2024 now. Oh. But I don't think they're going to stop construction. I think they will open part of the crater and then maybe plan other periods to do construction. I hesitate to confirm anything because I've seen <laughs> I've seen many cycles of anticipated opening dates come and go. Uh, it's been difficult. And I feel that it's a very, very worthwhile and enduring project. And I concur with that, Janet. I am so blessed to have this opportunity to learn more about the ins and outs and how you played such a key role in developing the models and really obviously connected to the whole system of what the crater has shown for us. I think for our viewers, there's a lot in this interview trying to understand perception, light, installation, but installation projects that he's done as well as the crater. But you as an architect who goes from light to land, I think we have to share with our viewers to end the wonderful vision you have for the future home, just the future experience and how you just enlightened me with your story about the happy llamas. So I'd love to just kind of end on that story and I'm going to uh, hand it over to you to, to tell us. Okay, well, the, we call this the happy llamas, but these are actually guanacos. But what I noticed, okay, I love land conservation projects, you know, where large sectors of land are get open. And this is one of them. This is in Acre Preserve near Bethel Woods. And the owner of the property started rescuing camels, and then he started buying tortoises, alpacas. He loves animals, but he was doing it as a rescue project. And he had this tent. That's a tent that these animals are using to live in. So we made a plan to do nine agriculture buildings with an Amish crew from Pennsylvania. The bidding process, everything we went through, we set it up so that we would do something that they do all the time. We weren't trying to do something new with architecture. We were just trying to do some really good run-ins. And this is a place where the animals live and sleep at night, where they're safe in winter. And so it's their home. And so these are the Amish. They built these structures in about two weeks each. It was just incredible. It doesn't have a floor. It doesn't have a bathroom, but it's an animal house. It's very well made, made to last. And the animals, they just loved their barns. These are guanacos, which is a camelid similar to alpacas and llamas. He has about 200 camelids in, in the farm. They're beautiful animals. They're just beautiful to look at. They're, they're barns. But before the barns, it was the temporary structure. And when they got their 
their buildings. They were just so happy. You could tell they were joyful and it has windows. It has, it's nice. It's, they feel safe. It's, um, they're comfortable. And it struck me that people should have that too. It doesn't take six months and 500,000 to build a place where you could live. So, I mean, as a starting point, the more important thing is the siting and the landscape, but you could design homes that were, that went up very quickly and then people could improve them over time. You know, they don't have to have everything from the get go. And um, I think we need to move from a culture of mortgages to a culture of public space and, you know, other uses of our wealth because inflation actually has harmful effects. You know, the dollar doesn't have a strong buying power when there's inflation. Yes, I owned a house where the value doubled in one year. It's like making money, but then you have to you have to put it in the next thing. You know, so I just think we need to rethink it. Doesn't mean anything's wrong with other models like apartment buildings and so on. Just it would be great to have something I have a number of friends who who don't own homes and they have student debt and they're just like wondering what's going to happen and and there's a psychological benefit to owning your own home as long as it's not too much work to take care of it but the idea of it's a mathematical concept where you build no more than you need for two people or four people and you know you have like a four person home with exactly what four people need and and not complicated up to the energy standards of today and perhaps in bordered against a commons or forest or agricultural which pays for it the agriculture really does pay for the crater so there could be models like this for neighborhoods it's just and that's the idea of you take a template you have uh, the huguenot village in new Paltz, it's an amazing template and that's that was built in the 1700s and it's still there and it's beautiful. You could do a modern Huguenot village just like James is doing modern stupas. <laughs> so it's rethinking housing. There's plenty of room for that. There's there's plenty of room. It doesn't have to be where you buy something and then you pay it off over a 30 year period while you wait for the value to go up. I grew up in California where a house you bought in 1960 for $40,000 is now worth $10 million. <laughs> So with your connections, and I'm going to kind of draw the connection in closure here due to our time, going from the stupas to the crater to the future horizon of how we could dwell in a happy home like a llama is to look at a sustainable, more efficient, smaller structure to invest in that has more of a long-term, less stressful experience that is part of the equation of happy dwelling. And Janet, I think you're like a genius to go from perception, light, the crater experiencing agriculture to how we can envision this type of village connected to nature, like a happy llama. There is a connection between what's going on with the, the happy llamas and Roden Crater because they have animals too. They 
the the animals and the agriculture actually supports large scale land projects. So it does have a benefit. And if you have any questions, like going further down, let me know. I appreciate that, and I and I'm sure I will. And I actually, again, for some reason, I just want to get this this concept down about light and no bounds experiencing a field. How do you spell that word again? G-A-N-Z-F-E-L-D. Okay. It means actually complete field. And it has an effect of you lose scale. The way that James puts it, I like very much. He goes, drink the light. (laughs) You drink the light. Drink the light. I love that. You just feel like you're quenching your whole body in it. Yes. Especially so with the natural light, but both are fantastic. I mean, the the Guggenheim, as I said, had record turnout for the entire museum's history on that show, which was not expected. People didn't realize how much James how popular he is. Collectors, they like to buy things they can take home. James is a little unwieldy for <laughs> on that level, but there are collectors who buy his works. They have to build them. They have to create the space. And it's, it's, an, it's architecture, but it's architecture that's used to exhibit light. To exhibit light. Architecture that's used to exhibit light. Right. So it's not about the architecture. It's about the light. And the architecture houses it or frames it, even even with the natural light, it does that. It frames it. Well, cheers to drinking the light and <laughs> happy llamas. And thank you so much. Take care. And I look forward to our future collaboration. Okay, thanks. And anything you have a question about, just let me know. I should. Uh, thank you so much, Janet. Bye. This is Psychotecture by Rachel Malvald with coaching, consultation, and psychotherapy offered virtually and in home throughout the Los Angeles greater area and nationally. We work to ease design challenges to create transformative habitats. Thank you, and we look forward to the next episode and your questions, so don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>